Turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians. Um, and we put, uh, you know, sometimes when you break in a series, you lose flow. So we adapt it uh, for a review for the first 11 chapters, an outline that uh, Bruce Wilkerson and uh, Ken Boa did in their book to maybe help you get uh, the argument of this book where he's going. He, he hears these reports while he's over at Ephesus, and he begins to answer why the divisions are going on. He gets in their letters. They ask him about immoral lifestyle, so he's responding to the questions. Then they ask him some questions in a letter that was lost uh, about marriage, uh, and we looked at that. And then we come to chapters 8, 1 through 11, 1, which is really one subject in there. And he's going to talk to them about going to idols' temples, about eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And the bigger issue, that's the social issue, but the bigger issue is how do the Christians who have more knowledge about an issue treat those with less knowledge that he calls the weaker brother. And uh, people who have just saved out of a lifestyle, and we here, over here who have this greater knowledge, we, can, we say we can do anything. Everything's permissible to me. And he's dealing with the uh, tensions. That was very common in the early church. Do I engage in all the freedoms I have, even though it may stumble, or ruin another unlooking believer. And so a bigger principle comes to light, which, what is to really govern my life ultimately when there's a toss-up between knowledge versus love for the one that may be stumbled at my knowledge? Let's say, how do I use knowledge in a loving way towards my brother? So in chapter 8, Paul lays down that thesis, and what we ought to be doing. You brethren that's got the knowledge, be sure you show love and consideration for those who don't, because Christianity operates on love, not on superior IQ or superior knowledge. I know more than you. We are the movement of love. Christ didn't come to show us he knew more than everybody, and he was the epitome and the incarnation of the truth. He came and showed us the love of God. So he, Dave Lockwood picked up chapter 10, the latter part, and showed us how this was applied to buying meat at the idol temple butcher shop, and different things to deal with their behavior. But chapter 9 is put in the middle, and it seems out of place, uh, but it's not, because the key to this section, notice 11.1. 11.1. Are you there? And you might ask yourself, could you write this about yourself? Follow my example. Can you say that to your kids? I'll look down. Follow my example. Is he an egomaniac? Because he had an example he followed. As I follow the example of Christ. So now chapter 9, he gives a biographical sketch of how he dealt with this knowledge, love issue, dealing with all kinds of people, and how he followed Christ in it. And he says, I've followed Christ. I want you to follow me. And that is the paradigm for our Christian life. So there's three things we want to look at. He's going to show us by his own life Three things, and I'm going to give you the chapter, what his rights were as a servant of God, and at the top of the heap of all the church, the apostle, what my rights really are. Then he's going to tell them about his rights that he surrendered for God. He surrendered his rights. 
And then I think the haunting thing that we will spend a little time on and that goes right over to chapter 10, 1 through 13, is having rights does not immune you from failing. Just because you've got all this freedom doesn't mean you cannot fail miserably in the Christian life. So let's begin. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Now, not many men in 55 AD had. The disciples, the apostles, those that were with Christ in his earthly ministry, but of course, Christ showed himself to Paul in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus. So I've seen the Lord in the flesh. Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal or the mark of authenticity. You are the mark of authenticity that I really am an apostle of the Lord. There's a local church that exists in Corinth that didn't exist until I came into town. And I'm talking to rebel rousers in that church that are opposing some things I'm teaching and saying, but hear me, Corinthians. God in his counsel determined you wouldn't exist until I came to town because I'm his human instrument. Oh, it's one thing to believe in sovereignty, but you better have human instruments. And I came representing the sovereign God that sent me there, and I am the human instrument of establishing this local church. Do you understand that? Because this man is under opposition, and if you don't believe it, you have to read 2 Corinthians, how intense it gets. So he's laying down, hey, I'm an authentic apostle. You are proof that God used me. You came to Christ through my ministry. Uh, hear me. I'm the real thing, right? You, you've got to admit that. Then he starts in, uh, let me tell you, some rights that I ought to be entitled to because of who I am, an apostle and a servant of God. And he starts in asking rhetorical questions, and you'll see the logic of it. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? What would you say to that? Yes. Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Yes. Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Not right. The others, Peter, the other apostles, don't work for a living on the side and come and preach. I worked for a living while I was among you, plus preach the gospel, but I deserve to be paid. Because you paid rabbis and you paid itinerary speakers who went out with Greek philosophy and they made exorbitant amounts of money selling their lectures on the lecture series. And here he says, I come to town, preach a gospel that saves you and establishes a church and you didn't give me a royal dime. And I deserve to be paid. Now, he's not really going to argue for a pay raise. Many of us preachers use this chapter to get a raise. But that's not what he's, he's, he's going after. He goes on. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? No one. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? No one. Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? No one. Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because when the plowman plows and the thresher thresses, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. God established this principle that the ox that plows ought to be fed. 
The ox that works ought to be cared for. It's an inherent part. And then he says, but God said this more, said a lot more than just about oxen. He's bringing it, he's concerned about a human ox that is working in the vineyard of the Lord. Should he not be cared for? It often reminds me of a story of a pastor friend of mine years ago, pastoring a little church in the Bay Area. They wanted a building program just to add some classrooms. He was making the grand total of about 7000 a year. And he uh, had their uh, chairman of the deacons call me and uh, uh, see if I could talk some sense into him that they might give him a raise. And so the pastor or the deacon called a good man, and he laid out the case. We'd like to give the pastor a raise, but we're wanting to add these classrooms, about three classrooms. And he said, we don't know how we can do both. And he told me to call you and that maybe you would have a word, you know, to say to maybe guide us through this. And I just thought and never thought of it before in my life. And it just came to me, you won't need a barn if the ox dies. That's great stuff. <laughs> and they voted to do the building program and give him a raise, and they did both. It's like the man that saw Spurgeon riding first class on a train, preaching during the week, and he, and he was riding in coach, and he came up to Spurgeon, and he just kind of wanted to rub him a little bit. He said, uh, hey, I'm riding in coach, uh, Spurgeon. Uh, and he showed him his ticket. He said, I'm saving God's money. And Spurgeon lifted up his ticket, and he said, and I'm saving God's servant. I don't have to preach all over England during the week. I got a big church takes care of me, but when I go, if I could afford first class, and that's where I'm wanting some of you to bring us guys going to Cuba up to first class. <laughs> As a little hint, I thought I would sow that seed of promised faith. Uh, you know, there is that tension. Some folks want bigger buildings and cheap salaries. And Paul is making the argument here. The law said take care of an ox, and he meant more than an ox. He applies it to the servant of God because sometimes we're like dumb oxen. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right, others had already come and been supported by you, and I think this is people on the circuit from the church maybe, other apostles, other preachers, shouldn't we also have this right? So he's just going right down, telling them, over and over. Now watch this. But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple, and this is talking about Old Testament temple, and if you read that, the priests ate well. They abounded with all the sacrifices. When Israel was obedient, the priest abounded. Don't you know that if you work at the temple, you get your food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar, all kinds of prime meat. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rites. I'm entitled, and I know that I am. The rights of the servant of God. He says over and over, I am not in the dark. But I want to tell you what I did with my rights. I surrendered them for the cause of Jesus Christ. I surrendered them out of the love I have for Christ because I'm not in the ministry for all my rights. I'm not in the ministry for all the perks. Uh, my message, you see, the contrast with Paul is the itinerant speakers were charlatans. They sold it. There's one word used of them. 
it, uh, in one of the epistles, they watered it down like wine merchants who added water to the wine. They watered down the message that they may gain the ear and the money of the people. And you always know this in, in biblical ministries. You always follow the money to see the motive. And here Paul says, there was no money involved when I came to Corinth. There was no contracts, no honorariums, no pay scale. I came as sent by God. I came preaching, no charge, because I'm in love with the gospel, not with money. So I was determined to give you the word of God without charge. I gave up the right. I had the right. I'm legitimate. I'm not lazy. You know, a lot of people have negative attitudes about preachers. You know, if someone can't do your job, everybody else looks lazy. That's what blue collars do to us guys that are preachers. Well, did you put in 50 hours this week? No, we put in 70. And sometimes they can't even read a book, and you read 10. It's easy to disparage people who do something you think is anybody can do it. I had a man shake hands with me one time, and he said, oh, I'm shaking hands of one who's never touched the plow. And after I hit him, because <laughs> he was a school teacher, I said, no, no, boom. And then I witnessed to him, no. Uh, but, you know, he just wanted to say, why, you lazy, no good? Paul you must know, as a rabbi, was taught how to be a leather worker. He can make shoes. He can make tents. He can make a leather jacket. He was taught to support himself as a rabbi. And so when he gets into Corinth, you know, Aquila and Priscilla, he worked with, he worked on a job, as it were, nine to five every day and preached at night. No charge. Get it. This church was led to Christ and established by a man that never received a dime's worth of support. Now, listen to what he says. But I've not used any of these rights. Um, and I'm not writing this in the hope. Now, what, this is important. And I'm not writing this to get an offering, is what he's saying. What? And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. And what is this boast? Not that I preach the gospel, because he's going to go in and say, I must preach the gospel, but that I preached it with no charge. That's my boast. Nobody can rob him of that. God knows it. The people know it. Watch what he says. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I receive a reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust or stewardship committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this. That in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. I deserve to be paid, but I gave it up. I don't deserve to be praised for preaching because uh, I would burst, burst if I didn't preach. I'm compelled to preach. On the broadcast Friday night, Pastor Stuckey and I were being interviewed. Uh, what, what, how do you know you were called to preach? Uh, how did you get that first inkling? And everybody describes it, their story, however. But I think some common language that uh, uh, preachers uh, use uh, it's things like this. Uh, I, I got the desire, okay? That's nice. 
That's not good enough, but it, it starts there. And, and then it, the desire uh, grew into a conviction. Okay. And then the conviction, uh, oh, we could start using other words. I start maybe growing in confidence. And uh, the clincher is I felt I could do no other. See, it's where I'm preaching to folks you don't understand. Us guys are afflicted with this calling. We, we preach when there's offerings, when there's not. You've got to know, this is the best I've ever been treated in my life. I borrow money to get across the bridges to preach around here. I've been kidnapped once, hitchhiking to preach. I've slept in classrooms. I've preached on streets. I've preached anywhere. I've preached to 10 people. I've preached in places where the pastor and his wife and me starved over the weekend because there was no money in that church, and we were in this broken-down rattle trap of a building in Santa Rosa. You idiot! There's no money in this vocation. Get out while you're a kid. Gladly. Gladly. You can't. Carolyn's dad resented the fact that she would marry me because he was a preacher's boy and hated the poverty of his home. But don't match up with somebody that I'm compelled to preach. This was Paul. I have a woe is in me. I, I must preach. Oh, oh, you didn't give me everything I wanted? Well, no preaching, no sermons in me, because whatever amount of money you give me determines how much burden I have to preach. Paul said, no, no, no. Take all the money off the table. I must preach. And I don't even get to be praised for it because I've got a stewardship committed to me. I feel a responsibility before God. And God alone makes a man have this compulsion, this internal burn. I must, I must. Only God can do it. Maybe he just did it for Paul. But I met other men who felt like, I must. There's a woe. And so he's defending his apostles. He's defending his motives. He's defending his ministry. It's an awkward place to have to defend yourself. But believe me, when this apostle does it, he does a thorough job for all of us. Now he goes on. I'm not living for myself. I'm preaching the gospel. And let me tell you how I've used my freedoms, 19 through 23. Though I am free and belong to no man, listen, I make myself a slave to everyone. And you want to say, you idiot. Be free. I know I'm free. I know my rights. And I didn't cash in on them. I know my freedom. I know how free I am in Christ. But I have voluntarily made myself a slave, for I'm living for something more than my rights. I'm living for him who saved me. I'm living for Christ. Who are you living for, is what he's getting to. Now watch what he says. In making myself a slave, a slave for what purpose? I want to win as many as possible to the Lord. What would you give up to win somebody to Christ? What would you give up? Now, don't be, don't, don't be uh, cast that over. That's a nice rhetorical question. No, that's going to determine what God does with you. If all you want is comfort and uh, money and and your, your little, uh, everything's around you, around you, go ahead and die on the little small island called you. Go ahead and die on it. You, you will never amount to a hill of beans for Christ. The people Christ conquers and the people he's calling this church, would you come and follow a Christ whom the goal of life is now becoming the slave of Christ for the sake of winning others, not living for my rights. If you got everything you wanted, power, pleasure, uh, money, 
a position. Oh, it's just a vain vapor that vanishes oh so quick. He said, I know I'm free, but I have volunteered to be a slave. I am among the Jews. He is a Jew, but I go among them, their synagogues, and in their social settings. And though I'm not under the law of Moses, I, I make myself culturally adaptable to people that are living under the law that I may win them. I seek not to offend them with a Gentile diet. I seek not to tell them all my freedoms. I go under their kosher laws, uh, not because I'm under them, but I'm trying to have a rapport with those that oppose my message that I may win some. It is amazing how inflexible most right-wing Christians are. They don't flex it. Everything's a compromise. They can't give in on anything. You know, it's really tough if you're that way in your marriage, that if you'll go to the mat for everything, uh, you better get a thick mat. You're going to be there a long time. You finally find out what's worth going to the mat for. And uh, sometimes the more fundamental, evangelical, right-wing, Bible-centered you are, everything's a compromise that doesn't agree with you. Because we're inflexible, because we're always right. We don't, we don't win anybody. We don't have any influence, but we are right. And who cares if we have an impact? Just be right. And so when you get to heaven, Jesus could say, you were so right and so ineffective. You never impacted anyone because you didn't know how to go across the street and invite your Muslim friend over for a meal. You can't feed a Muslim, can you? I'm talking to you. You, you can't feed a Muslim, can you? They're not right, right on Jesus. And we got this us-them mentality. We're the us group. Buddy, you used to be a pagan in God's eyes. You used to be part of the them crowd. And Paul said, I don't carry on my ministry that way. I'm adaptable. I go all over Asia Minor. I go up to Jerusalem where the strict Jews are. I go up where the pagans hang out. I go to Ephesus where they worship Diana. Man, I'm a cultural, I'm in, I'm in touch I'm not some obsoletist out here living, uh, you know, in some remote village, and there's nine of us going to heaven. No, no, no. Because I've become a slave to this cause. I'm adaptable. I I'm willing to flex all I can. Then he goes on, says, I, I hang out with those that don't have the law. That's the Gentiles. Though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. And Christ's primary law is to love one another. And if you love one another, you keep the commandments, right? You love him first. Don't start with commandments. You've got to settle the question first, do I love him? If you love him, you'll obey him. I'm under that. You never get free from that. I'm not under the law of Moses. I'm under the law of Christ. To love him and then everything he says. To the weak, I became weak. Who's the weak? The weak brother that doesn't know very much. Duh. The legalist, we would call. The legalist. Man, he doesn't know he can do this. Doesn't know that he can do that. I can't stand those legalistic Christians. You can't? Jesus saved them. I said, Jesus saved them. See, we get self-righteous with all of our knowledge. Us boys that know all of our liberties. Ain't nobody put me under that. We ain't worrying about you having an influence, are we? You're too busy living for you. Could you reach Amish people? Could you reach people that wear a covering? We're going to come to the covering and try to get all you women to buy a hat. We did it one time. Could you reach them when you're with those kind of people? How do you feel? Have you ever been with German Baptists? All their women wear a covering, a little bonnet, or do you make fun of them? See, this thing goes back and forth. There's no place for any of us to hide. 
Paul said, when I'm among them, when I'm among these Gentiles, I say, pass the rattlesnake and pass the Tabasco sauce, and I do everything in that home without sinning, and that's as close as you can get for a Jewish boy because I'm trying to win people. I'm not trying to preserve my rights. Okay, he keeps on. This is convicting. I should have given this back to David to do. Um, I've become all things to all men. He didn't ever compromise the truth. This is cultural adaptation. This is flexing where there's not an absolute. He didn't sin. So that by all possible means, and, and he wasn't selling playboys to finance his ministry, all legitimate possible means, I might save some. I thought Jesus saved. He's seen himself as a partner with God in his saving project. His mission is to save people. He's pretty straight on salvation, if you read Romans. He's got it figured out. He doesn't need any prof to straighten him out. I am in a saving operation. That's where he saw himself. I'm a part of God's means of reaching the human race. And then he says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Um, what are you living for? Are you living for the gospel? Are you living to make it known, to share it, to win people? You know what? We try to make you evangelistic, but we can't. Uh, we try to turn you into givers, but we can't. And, and you know, I just finally, I think, found the root problem. None of us is you're afraid of evangelism. You're what you're afraid of, you don't love God. Because where there's perfect love, it casts out fear. I said, well, you're perfect in love, it casts out fear. You're not afraid of being rejected if you witness. The big thing we're trying to do in evangelism is get you where you can share the faith and everybody like you and praise you and won't be offended that you shared Christ with them. We don't want you to be hurt. Get over it. Get over it. Have you read about martyrs? Have you ever read the book of Acts? Yeah, but look what happened to them. Now you know why the church expanded, book of Acts. It doesn't expand with a church whose heart has shrunk to defend their right not to win. Are you seen in this winning proposition? Now, we must keep moving. We've got 10 minutes. He goes on, and he picks an analogy. Let me tell you why I'm living this way. I've taken the stance of an Olympic runner an Olympic boxer. And they had the Isthmian Games right there. They had the uh, Greek Olympics in Athens. And then they had another meet that met there in Corinth. So they were, the Greeks were full of sports. And Paul says, let me tell you what I'm saying. I'm telling you, why don't you learn to live like the winners live? And let me tell you the ingredients of those who win in the Olympics. Let me tell you what they do. And I would give you just simply four Ds. First of all, they're determined to win. Number two, they discipline themselves to win. Number three, they win because they have a sense of direction or aim. And fourthly, they win because they fear being disqualified. Look what he says. First D. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. I want you to run like a runner that wins runs. Let me tell you how they win. I often share the difference, and, and it's very common. It's not true of uh, Meg. She's a competitor. She'll She'll beat you good in basketball if you're not on your guard. But my wife is very non-competitive, as maybe a lot of women are, but there's quite a few competitive women in this church, sports or otherwise, and that's okay. But I have a wife, and I always pick on her in this area because it's just her temperament. Uh, I'm terribly aggressive. I'm just not that good. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't hardly do anything with this back of mine. My discs are degenerating. And I just play ping pong with my grandchildren, and, you know, I don't spare them. I just beat the daylights out of them. 
anybody, but uh, the, the moving and all like that took me, it's taken me eight days to get, is there all the twisting. So I, I, I don't know hardly anything. I'm really physically a wreck as far as what I can do. Get in a pool and stare. That's about it. But I, I, I'm competitive. I, I like sports. Uh, to me, uh, a treadmill is the most boring thing in the world. Give me someone to beat. That's when you could exercise, right? Throw a, a ball on the court. Love basketball. Okay. Well, I always use this illustration when we used to go and have our couples retreats. Carol and I would wind up on the same team. But I want to win. That's the purpose of the game, right? Others think it's fellowship. I say it's smacking the ball and scoring. You know, and there's a poor 80-year-old woman, and you're, whoo! And uh, we buried her last week. Winning is everything in sports. But my wife, literally, and it's just her, I mean, it's just a fact. The ball would come, and, 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 and it's not good for the pastor at a marriage conference to be upbraid his wife in front of everybody, and especially when I grabbed her that one time. You know, Carolyn, this is a game. We are playing volleyball. This is not about fellowship. You missed it. Hit it or get on the other team. They finally got where they put her on the other team. But it's hard on your love life when you spike your wife. Uh, yeah, because she just, she, there's no competition in her. And we understand, but some of you are plenty, and not right or wrong. Paul is saying, I have a sense of determination about my Christian life. I want to run this race. Sounds like somebody wrote a book in that area. I'm not taking this thing light. And I'm talking to you, Corinthians. Some of you aren't running like runners. You don't seem to be determined to have an impact. You don't seem determined to put your brother before yourself. You seem to determined to live all about you. And you are going to lose the race. Then he goes on to say, winners do something that losers refuse to do often. And that is discipline themselves to win. And if you know anything about these Olympics, 10 months was reserved for training. They watch food, diet, not allowed to be with wife, mistress. You were isolated. Everything was training. Everything was early morning rigors. Uh, uh, man, these are like the Spartans, you know. Uh, Ten months, and that was a part of the qualification for the race. If they found out you omitted any part of your training, even if you won the race, you lost it because you had to keep the strict training. It was a part of it. So Paul says, no, no one gets involved in winning uh, without going into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. The crowns were made of parsley. They were made out of uh, just foliage that within a week turned brown. And they spent nearly a year of their life trying to win something that lasted for a week. But he said, I'm running for a lot bigger prize. I'm going to get a crown that lasts forever. I want to get a crown. You see it? Why are you running? You aren't running. You're lagging. There's no determination in you. The Christian life is the one thing you're the laziest about. You read magazines that you're overloaded, but you can't read your Bible. You worry, but you don't pray. You spend your money every day at Starbucks, but you're not a giver. You don't have it. No, you get too much caffeine, it's your problem. You're not running like anything's at stake, and grace people are sickening about it. I've got heaven free. I don't need to get concerned about the race. Because everybody's a winner. No, they're not. They are not a winner. And you're not going to win unless you run this race like winners run. Determine. I'm disciplined. What do you say no to? What do you say no to? To win. It's that great Tom Landry statement. 
that coaches are men who make men do what they don't want to do to achieve goals they want to achieve. Somebody's got to make them do push-ups in July in the hot sun, 49ers up there at Rockland. You better be out there doing some push-ups and you better be running because we haven't got a Super Bowl ring yet. We're going to see if you ever even get that far. It will be based on how lazy or how much you train. Jerry Rice, when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, I believe it was Richard, one of the brethren were telling me that Jerry uh, was telling about how he got there. And part of his story is that his father was a bricklayer. And sometimes as they were going up on a building, he'd be on scaffolding. And I believe it was Jerry and his brother worked with his dad. And the idea is one would throw a brick and then you'd throw it up to dad. Or maybe Jerry was on the other end. He was in that sequence some way. And he said, I knew I had to catch those bricks, especially if my dad was up a ways because he didn't, we couldn't have him coming down off the scaffolding. I was in the link. And so I learned I always had big hands and I felt awkward. But when I caught bricks all day for my daddy and threw them up to him, I never knew I'd get in the hall of fame because I learned to catch bricks. Then I learned to catch football. Discipline. Everybody wants a winner in the ring. But you see, the ring only determines the ability of the fighter, and it shows you if he was in shape or not. The best, best boxer can't last in a ring out of shape. And that's why they've got to retire them early before their gut gets soft and they get too lazy to run at five in the morning and run next to a car. Say, no, baby, I've already got the prize, enough money that I'm going to sleep in. I'm going to eat what I want. I'm tired of the discipline. And Paul is saying, some of you don't want to pay the price to be a winner. We understand, but don't think you'll win. There's a price to be paid to be effective soul winners and people influencers. Thirdly, he says, I don't uh, run as without aim, and I don't box without aim like I'm beating. I'm not a shadow boxer, is what he's saying. Uh, a boxer learns a knockout punch, and he said, I'm living to have a knockout life. I, I have a sense of direction, goal, and aim. Why are you living? If you ask Paul, I'm living for Christ. I'm living to make him known. I'm living that he may be promoted. I'm not living for my rights. I'm not living to be a rabbi that hangs out in Jerusalem. I'm not living to see how much I can accumulate in this world. I'm living for Christ to have an eternal impact upon people. Why are you living? And then he finally says, for you see, I beat my body blue. It's the idea he hits himself under the eye. And I take my body and I say, you are going to be a slave to me. You are not going to dictate my ministry. My need or my wants for certain food when I'm with the Gentiles, I will not insist that I have a Jewish diet that I grew up. I will make my body come under my goal. My goal is to be effective for Christ no matter where you put me, no matter who you put me with. And this body says, ooh, I don't like that. Ooh, that's not, it doesn't appeal. Ooh, all that stuff. I will take this body and say, you will submit to this goal. My body will serve my purpose. I will not be a slave to the body's appetites. Self-control at all costs. Sex, you want me? You can't have me. Drugs, you can't have me. Food, you can't have me. Popular, no, I will bring this body and I will put it under Christ and say, Christ is why I live. I want him to be magnificent in my body. And some of you are living for the body and you're out of shape and you're overeaten and you're over-pleasurized, and you're over, 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 and in your eternal bank account, there's little impact. 
because you become a slave to the body. Paul said, I don't, run, I don't live that way. Why? Because I don't want to have run the race and finally hear the Lord say, disqualified, disapproved, did not pass the test. I don't know why, but I've never had this passage scare me as much as this time. Because uh, let me give you the views that I ran into on this uh, very passage. Let me give you the, the, the different ones. Loss of salvation. No one believes that. John Piper does. Charles Hodge does. Linsky does. I was just astounded at men who believe salvation is eternal, still believe here Paul is saying, if I don't live in keeping the tie with verse 23, I'm going to partake in the blessings of the gospel. And they would see that as being saved by the gospel. So they say, I'm running, I'm determined, because I don't want to get to the end. And they would say, you didn't even make it, you're lost. It's the strongest view, and I was a little bit blown away with it. I'm just telling you how strong some men take this verse. Oh, well, we're the educated crowd. We're, we're way beyond Piper on this. We get the right view. But as I begin to think, maybe the more popular view that I've grown up, the Dallas men, John MacArthur, uh, let's see some other, the ESV Bible, Wayne Grudem, those guys, they say it's loss of reward. And you, and you know what you want to do? You say, okay, I, I don't mind if I don't get a reward. I just want to be in heaven. Okay, we'll go on to some other views. Loss of ministry. That's John MacArthur's uh, footnote view. He says, maybe he's saying, if I don't bring self-control over my bodily appetites, I'll lose my ministry as in sexual failure or like the incestuous brother back there in chapter 5. That other words, everything's at stake. No matter what view you land, there's going to be a loss, a disqualification. You're going to lose out on something. Then, loss of impact. Who cares if you have an impact? Just get saved, go to church, and forget impact. Uh, I don't care what view from the most radical of being lost at the end. I, I can't imagine the Apostle Paul is going to be lost. I don't take it that way. I do take it to be reward. But if you do those things that make you lose reward, don't you think it would also include, I lost my ministry to men and I've lost having any impact because I've refused to bring myself under godly control. I've lived for myself. I have no impact. And at the end, you can say, you're here by the grace of God, but I must burn up the rest of what you live for. Like chapter 3. The church is loaded with people without impact. If you want to have an impact, you'll have to give up your comfort zone. If you don't want to, go ahead and be disqualified. That's your choice. You don't have to run like a winner. You can run in comfort. Too lazy to be a winner. This man's in earnest. It uh, scares me because the older you get as a preacher, I'm at the age I'm supposed to be a sentimentalist and quit studying. And for sure, quit praying. I need to coast. I've been here 39 years. Let me coast. I think I've prepared enough. I've prayed enough. Come on, God. 66 years is a pretty good run. I know men that in the last two years of their ministry fell in bed with the wrong woman and lost all credibility. I got a memo I put in here of a man that wrote a a friend of mine and Richie's, Paul Knoll, he wrote him a letter, and the letter says, uh, it goes this way. A number of years ago, I had lunch with a recently fallen pastor of note 
who it had been discovered had carried on numerous adulterous affairs with women who served with him at his church for a number of years. In the course of our conversation, I asked how he could go on for so long while continuing in ministry. His response was that every week he would simply confess his sin and promise God and himself it would never happen again. He also made this chilling remark. I discovered that you really don't need the Holy Spirit to be successful in ministry. Paul Knoll, uh, Saturday, May 9th, 2009. You see, no sacrifice, no impact. No self-control, no impact. Uh, if you don't want to go down, you'll never go up. We wanted to go up, he came down. We want to be strong. Christ became weak. Paul's life is the epitome of the self-emptying of Christ in Philippians 2. It's, it's the parallel. I have emptied myself of rights, but I'm no better than the Savior who emptied himself of heaven. He entered the arena where spit and nails and curses fell upon him. But he's the only way a man will ever be in heaven. He entered this arena, ran this race, and look unto Jesus when you're discouraged, lest you lose heart, for he ran the race, and he coaches all that win. Look to him. Look to Jesus, lest you lose heart. Look to him, lest you sell out. Look to him, lest your rights become your God. We must not live for our rights. We must live for our Savior. I must let you go. God bless you. I must let you go.